Partial funding of Fruit Bowl is provided by listeners like you, who contribute through the Patreon crowdfunding website. Thanks to Ted A., who has been a patron since January. Find out more about becoming a patron at patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast. Growing up, I loved the Adams Family TV show. Gomez and Morticia, they're just constantly like touching each other and dancing together. And it's clear that Gomez and, and Morticia fuck, <laughs> like happily. And they have a dungeon in the house. <laughs> Masculine tops, power bottoms, butch girls, femboys, bears, otters, unicorns. There is no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl explores the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex. The embarrassing moments we'd like to forget. And the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way. Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave Quantic. Today's episode features my interview with Nayland, an artist, teacher, and kink instructor living in New York City. Stick around afterwards for a discussion that my producer Tom and I have about polyamorous relationships and how they can help expand our ideas beyond the traditional two-person relationship dynamic. But first, my interview with Nayland. When I first started interviewing people for Fruit Bowl in the summer of 2018, I avoided exploring some more sensitive topics with my interviewees. I felt insecure about my interview skills, and I didn't want to re-traumatize anyone or risk making them feel exploited. When I decided to go all-in and start work on a Fruit Bowl documentary feature, I knew I needed to start asking harder questions. Otherwise, I risked making a documentary that was only about silly, superficial topics related to queer sex. Gradually, I gained more confidence and started to ask tougher questions. To my astonishment, people I had never met before allowed me to come into their homes, set up a camera and microphone, and ask them very intimate questions about their sex lives. Don't get me wrong, their answers are often very funny. But as you can imagine, some of the memories and experiences are rooted in deep pain and trauma. Some people might find these stories disturbing or upsetting. I think they're deeply human stories that need to be told. So I'm letting you know now that Nayland's interview contains very honest, first-person descriptions of abuse and kink. But because Nayland is a natural storyteller and teacher, they have a lot of amazing thoughts to share about abuse survival and safe kink exploration. I'm Nayland. I'm 59 years old, and I graduated high school in 1978. I identify as a non-binary, queer, pansexual. I think my, my biggest thing is that I tend to move between communities. I'm old enough to have been around for the advent of the uh, bear community in the Bay Area in the late 80s, but also have spent time in the leather and kink communities, both the gay male and also the pan and queer communities. I've been involved in a lot of niche fetishes. So I've been involved in the uh, cigar and pipe community, the bondage community, and the uh, furry fandom. The boxes are a kind of inadequate system. It's more of a lot of a lot of areas to float between. Well, I'm very excited by the human capacity to erotically connect to many different things. <laughs> I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side. 
interesting mix there. I, definitely liberal. Uh, my dad is black. Um, he and my mom are both from New Bedford, Massachusetts. Um, when they met, she was uh, 18 years old. So she became pregnant with me at 18. That was in like 1959. Interracial marriage was still illegal in 14 states um, when they got together. So they left New Bedford, um, not under good circumstances with their families, and moved to New York and had me. They were a young interracial couple um, in New York right at 1960. I think that they were very into leading a kind of bohemian lifestyle. My dad had trained as an artist around the apartment. They had a lot of the kind of accoutrement of lefty socializing, I guess, um, at the time. The uh, apartment that I was in for most of my life was in a, a building that had a lot of young families in it. I have a sister who's about 11 years younger than I am. So, and she still lives in that building, as a matter of fact, as does my mom. Our next door neighbor was like a gay couple and good friends with my with my parents. Having the example of monogamous gay couple next door in the building provided a kind of example of like, whatever the fears that you might have for your kid, there is like this way that they could turn out to be just like everybody else in the building, except that they're like gay. So that in a way is the the great benefit of growing up like in a kind of urban environment where there's a lot of examples of like ways that it could turn out. So it's you don't have to be um as afraid. But then also um the joy of Episcopalianism is, is that we're, we're just not going to talk about it. <laughs> and that worked out for everybody. <laughs> When you asked me who my first crush is, like the first thing that leapt to mind was Cousin It. <laughs> I love that answer. <laughs> I say to people that I find lots of different people attractive, but the thing that will catch my eye immediately is more a proportion. Like I like a hairy person, but but also like if someone is close to being as tall as they are broad then they will catch my eye so they could be like four feet tall and four feet wide and i'm as interested in them as if they were like six feet tall and six feet wide <laughs> one thing that i point to a lot growing up is that i loved the batman tv show there's like a there's like a cave under the house but there's a lot of like mind control and hypnosis and love potions and stuff like that um that is that's there in that show it's like the danger for batman all the time is like he's presented as such a figure of reason in that show that like the 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 eruption of the erotic is highly sort of sexualized in there my first Broadway show that my parents took me to was Hair, was the initial production of Hair. A lot of sex. Um, and I had the I had the original cast album. Um, and also it's like you saw naked people in it. You saw like naked people on stage. That was also like a was there in the in the mix. Um, the first time I learned about the mechanics of sex was reading science fiction and fantasy books. So people like Harlan Ellison and Theodore Sturgeon and Joanna Russ. And so a lot of that was sexually explicit. For me, a really big part of my sexual education was through written pornography and much less so through photographic pornography. My parents had some books that could be classified as as porn, Psychopathia Sexualis, The Marquis de Sade's um, Justine, 
and Juliet. Uh, there's a book called My Secret Life. It's these um, sexual diaries of this Edwardian guy. And one of the things that was interesting in all of those books is that they were not um, compartmentalized in terms of straight and queer. So there were characters who were having all kinds of sex in all of those books. And it was only much later, as you went into the 80s, that porn books started to become very narrowly focused in terms of what they would have in them. Pulp porn, up to that point, it was sort of like enough, the writer was like churning out enough pages, it kind of didn't matter what was in them. They, you would have books that would have like lesbianism and incest and male sex and, but you know, bondage and there, it would all just sort of be thrown in there just to make up a page count. I saw these sort of sexual utopias depicted that were um, about a whole range of erotic subjects and objects. For me, they were very much tied up with my erotic life because like most magazine stores or or newsstands might have one or two porn novels like on the spinner rack with all of their other like pulp paperback books and you could sort of like figure out this was a good one or that or you know that that it was a lot easier as an adolescent to sort of sneak that in with your other purchases or to like find used copies at a used bookstore. And then when I got a bit older, I started to go down to Times Square to where there were these bookstores. Uh, I ended up finding out that there was like a much better value in buying a novel, <laughs> like buying a porn novel, <laughs> because you got that many more scenes. And like, it might be like in the magazine, like, Maybe you thought somebody was hot or not, but like in the novel, you, you know, you could basically make up the difference in your own head. My parents never had the talk with me. I think just kind of mutual embarrassment around it. I didn't, you know, it's like I didn't want them to have the talk with me. <laughs> I think with a lot of things, they were just kind of like, well, he'll probably figure it out. Or <laughs> I don't know if we can say that, that it was like a sex positive household, but it was certainly like a sex adjacent household. Um, so, so that we knew sex was around, <laughs> but it wasn't like, so so it wasn't like it was like banished. It definitely was weirdly enough not brought up all that much. I think I should also say that that sort of embarrassment and not talking about things cut in both ways because I had a family member who was not in my immediate family but whose behavior towards me I have subsequently come to realize was abusive and and sexualized in a way that took advantage of the fact that nobody was going to say anything so it was a kind of sexualized teasing and terrorizing of me that I think framed a lot of my sexuality it's only been very recently that I've been able to talk about what that behavior meant to me with my parents and to also be able to make some space to acknowledge, I think, the anger that I had towards them and them not stepping in and them not defending me. I mean, and this is the thing that we know that abusers do, right, is that they suss out, like, where the where the line is, where they can sort of get away with, with what they want to do. You know, I can say that the behavior that this guy indulged in was teasing, tickling, lying on top of me, and, and you know, could sort of maybe fall under the, the rubric of, like, roughhousing. And I would say that this behavior started early on for me. I mean, I must have, you know, I was probably like seven or eight maybe or something like that. 
you know, it wasn't like I was a rough and tumble kid and we were rolling around or wrestling. It was like I was always a kind of bookish and quiet and artsy kid. And he would engage in this behavior. And what I learned to do and as a survival mechanism was to disassociate and to really leave my body and kind of endure it until it was over. And that is something that I think I have tried to learn to address in my adult kink life. Even now, certain types of touch are off limits for me because I, because my my impulse to disassociate is so strong. But I, one of the things that I'm grateful to kink for is that I've been able to kind of explore like, okay, what are the other parts of that that might be places where I can reclaim my bodily autonomy, right? So certain types of bondage. Um, are I've been able to kind of reclaim, you know, and um, and to be present in the midst of it is actually kind of empowering. Like his behavior taught me a weird idea about what my body and my sexuality was for. And so I think that there were ways that played out down the road. And I think that there's a, a complication in that much of the work that I make as a as a visual artist and as a sculptor is, I think, a working through of these same sorts of situations and also trying to figure out ways of working through it uh, without re-traumatizing. One of the things that kink is about is power and people understanding how to negotiate around power. Um, the the idea of consent is a powerful one, is one that allows people to, again, explore things about themselves. I don't like to use the word therapeutic in relationship to it because I've been in therapy and therapy is structured in a particular way to allow you to do a certain kind of work. And it assumes a power relationship that isn't as symmetrical as the relationship, as the power relationship in a kink scene. Um, so like in a kink scene, both people bear like an equal responsibility towards, you know, whether they are topping or bottoming or what or whatever the, the scene is kind of built around. Whereas in a therapeutic relationship, it's it's different. It's asymmetrical. You are to some extent paying, you're paying a person um, to occupy a role and they're occupying that role for in a specific way for a specific reason. Um, but you don't necessarily have equal power in that situation. Buying explicit newsprint porn at the newsstand to like finding out about Times Square and going down there. I went from the front of the store to then the back of the store where people were looking at loops, eight millimeter and 16 millimeter loops, becoming aware of like the movie theaters that were around Times Square and slowly walking back and forth and like make get working up my courage to be able to go into one. And I was... 15 the first time that I went in and basically they were 18 years of age and older but I was a big kid it's like people did not care <laughs> or you could often find you, you it was rare that you would find a ticket taker who was that afraid of getting busted so I didn't I never had a problem like going into those porn going into those porn theaters and I think the first one I went into I remember really clearly, um, like finally working up my courage to go into, and it was showing a straight film that had John Holmes in it. And there was a sex scene that was set to the song Cisco Kid. So to this day, like I associate that song with badly lit, unattractive 
hardcore porn. <laughs> Fucking. <laughs> and it was kind of like, okay, I this is hot because I'm in, like, a porn theater, but uh, this is, like, also just kind of, like, gross because it's, you know, because it's just kind of gross. And nothing happened between me and any of the other patrons at that point. Um, but, like, you know, a few times later, when I, and particularly when I started going to the Adonis, which, is, which was an explicitly um, gay porn theater on 8th Avenue, then that was when um, I, I started, like, hooking up with, with guys. Basically, the way that those places worked was they were, like, converted, like, larger movie houses, and you would go, and eventually somebody would sit down next to you, and if you were interested in each other, it's, like, gradually, like, your knees would touch, and and I remember this guy, you know, like, our knees touching, and then him sort of reaching over and feeling me up, and eventually taking out my dick, and uh, and him sucking me off. It was like going to the bathhouse. Like it was like the whole point of it was like public sex. And and in fact, there's a kind of great porn film called A Day at the Adonis, which is all shot around the Adonis theater and is about guys like going and having sex at the movie theater. I would definitely get crushed out on porn actors, but almost always guys who were in straight films. I had a total crush on young Ron Jeremy because he was like a, like a hairy kind of chubby guy who would also do comedy like he did comedy in his movies I was never attracted to the kind of gay young boys in the sand like golden surfer thing was not hot for me at all but so much of the porn industry was based in New York and it was much more ethnic-y, like, New York guys. So, yeah, a lot of a lot of guys in straight porn I, I thought were really hot. In 78, I went to Bard College... Bard's like a small liberal arts school that is located in the Hudson Valley, not that far from Kingston, New York. The time that I was there, it was like a thousand students across four years, so 250 a year. It's adjacent to a couple of towns, but the campus is pretty kind of isolated and its own thing. My time at Bard was in this weird little bubble for a number of us. It was right after sexual liberation movement and right before AIDS. And so there was like this this odd little period of time when there was a a sort of sexual frankness and sexual availability that was very I would say divorced from consequences maybe. We were doing a lot of drinking. Like the drinking age was still 18. So we used to go to the local bar off of campus and get drunk and pick each other up a lot. And also there was just like a lot of romantic pairing. Bard did not have many out gay male students. There were many more out uh, lesbian students. I was with sort of a succession of women during the time that I was at Bard. Uh, for a long time in my life, more sort of traditional couple sex, I was having with women. Uh, and so the first person that I had full on like here we're lying next to each other in bed and now we're going to first we'll have oral and then we'll have like insertive sex and um that was somebody who was in my class at Bard and that you know became like a whole other series of erotic attachments I remember uh she used a diaphragm and there was this spermicidal jelly that you would that you would put in it called um, orthogynal, which is um, to this day like a smell that I still have an erotic attachment to because it was something that I only ever smelled like right when we were going to be having sex. <laughs> so like my conception of like relationships got all formulated around um, relationships with women. 
I had a real political identification with being gay. My sexual activity with men was really all around anonymous sex at that time. Um, and I think that was in part because of lack of opportunity. There was, as, as I said, there were very few um, out gay students, gay male students at that point. The first time I had sex with somebody that um, that I knew uh, was a fellow student of mine uh, at Bard. It was oddly, I would say, unromantic, ultimately. We had met each other in a class. We were sort of hanging out. Um, eventually, we ended up in a band together. During like some break or something, maybe it was like over the summer, he was staying um, in Midtown, we hung out for the day and then he asked me if I wanted to sleep over and yeah, I think we started making out and then like kind of kept going and yeah, I just remember it being like, okay, well we kind of did that, but it was not, it wasn't super exciting for either one of us. And so it never sort of came up about like, oh, let's do this again or whatever was funny because we are still good friends, but we had sex that one time and it was not so great. <laughs> We've never sort of done it again. Um, but we're still like really good friends. <laughs> I I think one of the other things that's that's really informed my sexuality is that I've learned a lot from the women's movement and particularly feminist writers who are talking about the power imbalances um in uh, around heterosexuality and heteronormativity. And um, by the end of my time at Bard, I started to feel not good about the way that I was relating to women sexually. And so when I decided that I was gonna go to graduate school and decided to go to, to CalArts on the West Coast, I also made a decision that um, I was no longer going to pursue uh, sex with women. And in some ways, that was a kind of like ideological decision. <laughs> um, so when I arrived at, out on the West Coast, everybody sort of knew me as, as gay. I was also starting to get really interested in kink, but there, I was not embedded in any sort of like a kink community that would allow me to develop negotiating skills or even understand like what that was supposed to be about. And that was also part of the reason why I was very wary of pursuing that with women. I at least had the instinct that I did not know enough to do that responsibly. And that coupled with the kind of power imbalance that was inherent in heterosexual sex made me very wary about pursuing that. Given enough um, alcohol, I could pursue that with men. And that sort of leads me to like kind of the most embarrassing sexual encounter I ever had, which um, was a Los Angeles gay bar. I can't remember the name of the bar, but basically a leather bar. Um, near the end of my time at CalArts, so this is like 1984, I went there with friends. I don't drive and don't own a car. So I was basically, I got a ride to this bar with friends of mine. We started drinking. I got very, very drunk and decided that a particular guy in leather at the bar was super hot and super interesting. And we had been sort of like cruising each other. Um, so eventually I announced to my friends drunkenly that I was going home with this guy, um, who they didn't know and who had never, you know, I had never seen before and that everything was okay. Don't worry. I'll like, a, I'll, I'll get a ride with him back to like your place tomorrow or whatever. So this guy takes me home and it is to some place, I think in Silver Lake, and he's sort of grilling me about who I am. And he's like, oh, you're an artist. You're an artist, huh? And, and um, he's like, oh, well, I'm an artist, too. I'm, I want to show you my work. And so we get back to his place where there's like his roommate is also there and is sort of like around. 
Um, and he starts showing me his work, which is like stained glass portraits of his Yorkies, <laughs> which, which like, so he's showing me his work and I'm like, and there's probably more drinking going on. I'm like, okay, this is not as hot as it was like half an hour ago, but here we are, you know? And, and so he starts going into this whole thing about like, oh, have you ever been hypnotized? So the part of me that was bred on like um, mind control drugs and love potions from Batman is like perks up and is like, oh, okay, yeah, like let's, I haven't, let's see where it goes. Um, Go ahead, like go ahead. And he proceeds to hypnotize me. I think it's like, oh, this is all going to be this kind of like sexual surrender. and, um, And the point of his hypnosis is that he wants to find out what I'm what I really feel and that I really and whether or not I'm really in love with him. And, and so at this point, like drunken me is like, uh sure. I, I had subsequently learned like you you can't really hypnotize drunk people. <laughs> like <laughs> um but at this point I'm like okay, this is, like, my first big, like, leather date, right? Like, I, wherever this goes is where it goes. So I think that he thought that he really put me under, but I have no way of actually knowing. So then the next phase is that he has me stripped down and puts me in the shower washes me off and then proceeds to shave me from the neck down. Now I have a lot of body hair, um, more so than I did at that point. But, but still, even at age 24, I, I was, you know, I, I was a pretty hairy guy. And so he shaves me smooth, um, from the neck down and then, um, takes me out on his back patio and pisses on me on like the patio. Now, okay, this is like relatively hot at this point, but it's sort of coupled with like like the hypnosis part is all tied to his sort of insecurity. So he's exerting this control, but there's like this weird emotional insecurity that's going on at the same time. And so I'm still like super drunk and then it comes time to go to sleep and he sort of you know, puts me back in the shower, washes me off again. It comes time to go to sleep. And his big idea is that he puts a hood on me and uh, puts me at the foot of his bed. Um, so that I'm going to sleep at the, like down on the floor at the foot of the bed while he sleeps in the bed. I think I have like mitts on my hands and the hood on my head. So um, for those of you who have any experience with bondage at all, um, you are probably like screaming, no, 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 this is wrong. Like the last thing you do is put a drunk person in bond. Like, Like I could easily have puked and aspirated into you know with the hood i sort of was at that point of drunkenness where i would sort of fall asleep but not really i kept sort of like falling asleep and waking up falling asleep and waking up and somehow managed in the middle of the night to use the mitts and work the work the hood like off of my head so by the time the morning came, um, the the hood was off. And then, this being Los Angeles, it's morning time, and I don't have a car, and don't drive. And this is before cell phone time, so I can't, like, call a cab or call my friends. And, and, and now, having sobered up some, all I want is, like, I'm done with this guy, right? He says, well, let me give you a ride back to your friend's place. For him, this has been, like, dream date. He's gotten to do, like, every single thing that he's ever wanted to do and has uh, secured the admissions, the the true admissions of my love for him. (laughs) So 
I'm trying to get him to drive me close enough back to my friend's place, but far enough away so that he doesn't actually know where they live. <laughs> so I'm trying to come up with an address that is somehow like, you know, it, it's somewhere cutting the, dis- the distance between those two. Meanwhile, he has decided this is like the relationship of his life and that um, as I've described to him, um, my plan is to move up to San Francisco, you know, and at the during the middle of the summer to relocate now that I'm finishing school. And his whole idea is like, no, 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 don't do that. I'm working security at the Olympics. Stay down here and you can work on my security crew at the Olympics. Like there's a whole new, you know, this is this is like the whole new life that he's going to have. <laughs> and at this point, my whole concern is like, let me get out of the car. <laughs> I give him like the false phone number. Um, managed to get out of the car. And that was the last that we have ever seen of each other. Um, I did have like two weeks of full body stubble and ingrown hairs to deal with <laughs> as, as the memory of that, <laughs> of that uh, dream date. <laughs> so there was a situation, right. Where I was like, finally, I'm going to get to do all of this like hot kinky stuff that I've wanted to do. Like here's like dominance and submission and like, behavioral modification and all these things that are that are like super hot and it was just like combined in this package with like the the most sort of like irresponsible and um wrong-headed person to deliver that message and so it took me a long time to return to any of those things in a kink context and even today it's like my i i my one rule is that like, you cannot shave me in a scene. Like, uh, like, like I'm into someone like ordering me to get a specific kind of haircut or something like that, but body shaving. No, that's just not worth it. (laughs) That is, that is, that is a red line. You know, I was in love with my, uh, first girlfriend at Bard, the first person that I had uh, sex with. So that was, we were together for like a year. I would say that my longest romantic relationship was with a guy named Phil. You know, in the late 80s and early 90s around San Francisco, I was very involved in the art scene and the poetry and queer activism scene. And uh, one of my friends was a guy named Christian who lived in a building in in uh, Chinatown. And I remember coming over to Christian's house for a birthday party of his. And in the same building, there were a couple of other guys who lived in the same building, but one of them was this guy, Phil who I had seen around like various like activist um, circles in the, in the Bay area. And um, I just remember sort of remarking to Christian like that, you know, that Phil is very, very cute. And Christian always has my best interests at heart. (laughs) And, uh, and I think invited Phil up, to the party and sort of like pointed us at each other and and uh and we started talking kind of hit it off from there and then moved in together and were together for like 12 years we were great at cohabiting and not so compatible sexually and that relationship started to lead me to an understanding of of where i'm at today which is that for me, um, there is something about the term boyfriend or girlfriend um, and the idea of an exclusive relationship that immediately makes me think that 
I'm not going to be able to ask for all of the things that I want in that context. And so I'm, I immediately start looking for ways to kind of like cheat or get around that. And, um, I learned after the end of that relationship, um, with Phil that, um, it, it actually was better for me not to use those terms. It really took me until my mid forties to, um, find a kind of model for romantic and sexual compatibility that made sense to me ultimately where I'm at now is, uh, I have what I call co-conspirators and, uh, these days there's about four of them, I guess, and they all know about each other and they are all also with other people. Although I would say that the degree of romantic involvement with them, it varies. And so I wouldn't say that like any of us are each other's well, it's hard to say. In some ways, like when you think about like a kind of poly um, relationship, there are we're kind of each other's primaries. But the point of it is that there's a, I don't have to hide anything. All of us are really excited about hearing each other's adventures. And there are times when they like team up on me and plot against me. And that is kind of amazing in a super fun way. Um Occasionally, we will do stuff around, like, chastity play. I mean, for those who are unfamiliar with chastity play, it's, like, it's a type of bondage where you cannot access your genitals with, like, a chastity device of some kind. Could be, like, metal or plastic or... You're prevented from being able to get off. You know, one will order me to sort of, like, lock up and have told, like, one of the other ones, and they'll be like, oh, I hear you're locked up. Oh, that's so terrible. And they'll be, like, teasing me with what I can't get from them, you know, or trying to get, trying for one to get me in trouble with the other, or um, it uh, can get kind of uh, elaborate in that way. know if I have a best move in bed. I would say that I have some skills. One of the things that I do um, in in the kink scene is that I, I do like teach some classes for people who might be into humiliation scenes. Um, and I think I'm very good at uh, at designing those kinds of scenes for people. Um, for people who um, might want to have an interest in erotic humiliation, I think I'm very good at. Um, I'm, I have been trained to be very good at spanking people. Uh, ultimately, my best move in bed is a sense of humor. If somebody can't laugh during sex, um, we're gonna have a problem because. There is something about sex that is, you know, it is joyous, but it is also ridiculous. So if we can't get into that part of it, then there's going to be a problem. So I, I would say that the sort of my best quality in in bed is a, like an appropriate sense of humor. Well, for example, I love uh, caning people, which is like hitting people with a with a cane. A lot of times people associate that scene with a very kind of like, you know, English uh, preparatory like punishment scene, right? And uh, now you've been bad and you must be punished and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'm not a person who's big into punishment. I'm, ju- I'm more of the level of like, look, this is a cane. It's like, it's just a stick. I'm just going to hit you with a stick for a while. <laughs> it's like, see, I'm not even, I'm barely doing anything. I'm just like tapping you with this stick. Why are you getting all this? What, like, what? You, it's, that, it's that hurting? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably this one hurts a lot. You know what? I'm going to give you one. It's going to be really bad. That's really going to hurt. And like, I'll whack them. You know, so it's a kind of like back and forth, like, 
keeping it light, which doesn't mean that the sensation is light, but I think that you can get further and be more intimate with somebody when you're not acting like this is the most important thing on earth. And I think that that's one of the problems people run up against in sexual development so much. We're taught that it is this super important thing, like it's the culmination of human connection. And yet, often we're we're not allowed to practice it. So you're supposed to automatically know how to do it. You know, it's like one of the, the things that I say is that like the gift that kinky people have for vanilla people is that Kinky people know that the thing that they are doing is complicated and potentially dangerous. So they have to get consent around it and they have to practice it before they do it. Vanilla people are told that what they do is natural, so they should automatically know how to do it. And if it doesn't work out for them, then there must be something inherently wrong with them because anyone else would know how to do this kind of natural thing. So you, you have a really hard time developing skills in relationship to that because you don't get to practice and you don't get to acknowledge failure for what it is. It's like a failure, but it's not an, a total failure. And so like the ability to keep it light allows you to eventually go deeper because you know that it's not an all or nothing situation. I don't do well on like grinder or scruff. It's probably been about a good six to eight years since I've been on any of those because A, they are very photographically based and I need to know that I can have a, like a conversation with the person. Like one of the reasons why I teach kink classes is that I'm too old to, to sleep with boring people. It's just not at all fun for me anymore so the so you know at least i can train people to be like more interesting in a class <laughs> patriarchy is a system where women identified people are supposed to perform femininity male identified people are supposed to perform masculinity and are supposed to be born knowing how to do that even though it's performing it they're, they're supposed to automatically, naturally know their role and be able to successfully perform it. The thing about patriarchy is that it protects male-identified people from the consequences of what happens when they screw up their role and penalizes women when they screw up their role. So I think, I think that straight men feel as much the onerous burden of having to perform masculinity, but they don't face the same sorts of consequences as queer people do for failing to perform masculinity. So queer people have the advantage of being able to go like, well, these are the consequences, well, fuck that. I've taught a lot of artists at this point, and a lot of people who have dealt with trauma and with abuse and my feeling about what abuse is is that it, it is someone stealing your narrative agency and making you a character and not a central character in their story and one of the things that we can do with that when we are put in that position is return to being the narrative center of our own story. That is literally telling the story of what happens after the abuse, what happens besides the abuse, what happens like, like, like reclaiming the centrality of our own experience. And so I think that's why, you know, a lot of people do turn towards art. Um, and it's, and it's one of the things it, it is, it is one of the ways out. I look at myself as a person who was scared out of their body by an abuser and took refuge in an intellectual life. 
in a life of like writing and reading and making and thinking. And through those activities and a lot of help from a lot of lovers managed to find their way back to being embodied again. And that is what sex has meant and continued to mean for me. Finding a home back inside of my body. I interviewed Nayland in October of 2019 in Brooklyn. Thanks to my friends Dave and Graham for helping me reach Nayland. And of course, thanks to Nayland for trusting me with your story. Next up, my producer Tom and I discuss polyamory in an excerpt of an extended conversation that we had about different topics related to Nayland's interview. This extended conversation is available exclusively to our patrons through the Patreon website. Nayland, I feel like, brought a real openness to exploring different options. I think it was interesting to hear about somebody else's idea of a polyamorous relationship that didn't revolve so strictly around labels or uh, assigning roles or primary things. I liked the term co-conspirators, yeah. uh, even if it definitely doesn't fit in my life. Um, <laughs> I like the I like the the roles everybody plays. I think um, in my personal, uh, though I hate the word polycule. Uh, uh, that's such a such a modern one that people have come up with for describing their poly arrangements when they're outside the norm. I've never heard that term. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah it's the idea of like a molecule, but a polycule. Okay. Um, so, when <laughs> what does it describe? Uh, your polyamorous relationship arrangements when they're kind okay. of outside the norm. So, like, but what is norm in poly? Right, like, there is no norm. Right. I thought that was the whole point. Right, but not everybody wants to use labels like husband and boyfriend, I which see. sort of immediately assign a primary. Oh, I see what you're saying. Uh, so, like, you know, like if people meet my husband and then meet my boyfriend, they kind of get an idea of how things work. So, you're in a poly relationship. Yes. Do you mind if I ask you about it? Oh, no, by all means, go ahead. Because <laughs> I don't think we really discussed the the mechanics of it when, when I interviewed you for Fruit Bowl. Yeah, no, I think we talked a lot about early sexual stuff the last time. Mm -hmm. And I think I've since increased the number of questions, and I probably would ask you about it sure. if we were to revisit our interview, which we could always do. Yeah. But um, so just introduce your unit. Uh, so... I have been with my husband, Garth, for s over 16 years now. Um, we were married when the laws changed in Washington State in December of 2012. Um, and for the most part, roughly since the beginning, we've experimented with forms of non-monogamy, finally setting on a fairly open relationship by this point. Um, uh, or at least by the point that we meet, meet Dave, who is currently my boyfriend. Um, and we met about five years ago now, um, or 2015, so roughly four or five years ago now by this point. And Dave started out as a sexual partner for both Garth and I. Um, I met him for drinks one night at CC's just to, you know, get a feeling. Uh, I went back to his apartment and had sex with him the first time we met. Uh, it was awesome. So I wanted to have sex with him again. So I think I invited him over to, to have sex with my husband and I. Uh, and then that continually happened more and more for about six months or so um, before Dave and I realized we'd caught feelings for each other. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't the first time I had had feelings for somebody outside of my relationship. I think over time, my husband and I realized that I am emotionally non-monogamous. I am going to have feelings for people somewhere, somehow, something like I, I love people. And that tends to come out in really effusive feelings for my friends. And, uh, you know, it's been a long time of learning how to have healthy balances of those things uh, and feelings uh, along with my primary relationship. And um, I think that my husband has uh, greater sexual needs than I can offer him. And so while I am often out uh, chasing these feelings for boys that I have, he's probably getting the good dicking that he needs. Um, 
and uh, we, we, and he's with other people. Yeah, I, I think that Garth likes his sexual adventures and is off adventuring sexually. Um, but you're not sharing Dave anymore. Uh, uh, we haven't had sex as a threesome in a while. Okay. Um, I don't think we're opposed to it. Okay. Um, we're just always very organic about how these things happen and, uh, try not to force stuff. Sure. Um, sure. And, and do you all live together? No, Dave has a separate place. Okay. Um, I think we are now, uh, searching for our fairy castle, you know, the sort of place that's going to actually work for all of us to live together. Yeah. But um, so that's the goal. Yeah. And it seems as rare as, you know, couples searching for the unicorn, the third yeah. in their relationship, like finding the right place to live actually feels really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to balance everybody's needs in one space, is especially tough. in Seattle. Uh, and that's the difficulty is that it'll probably be outside of Seattle. Right. Just because, uh, yeah, fitting us all in one place here means stepping up in size and, uh, if listeners don't know, Seattle's expensive. Seattle's really expensive. Um, and if you could build your ideal home, would it also include you all sleeping together in the same bed? You know, I love the idea of that. The practicality of that is a nightmare. Yeah. Um, I have recently learned that there are larger size mattresses than King, <laughs> uh, California King, and then Wyoming King and Whoa. Alaska King. Oh, my God. Which are meant for sleeping with family and pets. Um, <laughs> so these are out there. You know, beds yeah. for, for three, four people are out there. Um, uh, I'm a fussy sleeper. I think I would drive the other two crazy if I had both of them in bed all the time. Um, we have slept together all before in the same bed. Um, it takes a big king bed for my husband and I to sleep well together because we're far apart and each can have our own mess of sleeping because yeah. we're not the best sleepers. He can sleep forever and stay in one spot and not move and I'm going to thrash and be all over and get up a million times in the night. So I... balance is tough, finding something that works for all of us. Yeah. I think what my major takeaway from Nayland is that if you and your partner decide to open up, then you can also decide what that's going to look like. And you don't all have to know what that's going to be. Like it can be something that is improvisational or that you take a turn or you adjust as you go. You know, I I like that. Absolutely. I think all of it should be a constant negotiation, whether it's with yourself or with your partners all the way through life. But it hardly is ever that, you know, like people think that once they get together, they make the rules and they're supposed to be fixed for the rest of time. And and when things shift or people change their mind, that's when things break down, you know, And, and it doesn't really have to be that way. No, it's interesting because lately in kind of uh, doing a lot of, of work on myself, um, I've been toying with the notion of secular Buddhism. And one of the things that Buddhism tries to remind people is that one of the constants in life is that you will always change and people will always change. And therefore the people you care for will always change how they feel about you. And you will always change how they feel about them. That's the only constant (laughs) is the change. Yeah. And so being able to adapt to that change and not be startled by it and know that the change itself is not fixed. Mm -hmm. I think that's what we fear when we see change coming is that we imagine that if we are on a straight road for all of time, paved in the rules that we've made that when a right turn comes that we are then forever stuck on that right Mm -hmm. turn the reality is that that right turn can lead to a roundabout with any number of exits and we can find ourselves back on that original road if we want to be or we can find ourselves on new roads entirely that we didn't even know existed As I mentioned, I film almost every interview I conduct for Fruit Bowl in preparation for my first feature documentary film. As a challenge to myself, I've decided to edit two-minute shorts of each interview featured this season, and I'd love to hear what you think about them. You can see them on our Twitter feed, at Fruit Bowl Pod, or our Instagram account, Fruit Bowl Podcast, or our new YouTube channel. You can find a link to our YouTube channel on our website, fruitbowlpodcast.com. Are you a business or organization that wants to reach a growing and diverse sex-positive audience? Or would you like to make a donation in the name of a loved one and dedicate an episode in their memory? Fruit Bowl has established a fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum, which means that any donation is tax-deductible. 
If you'd like to find out more, just write me at dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com. And my search continues for interviewees from the Atlanta area. Please, if you or someone you know lives there and is interested in being interviewed, please reach out to me via our website or social media. I would really like to include more voices from the South. Thanks again to our podcast partners who've supported us. Gayest episode ever with Drew and Glenn. Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. Matt Baum's Sewers of Paris. And a linoleum knife hosted by Dave and Alonzo. Fruit Bowl is a production of Cubed Media, LLC. All rights reserved. Thanks for listening.